Now is the time that slavery cannot be sanitized anymore. We are all a cog in the system. Welcome to Art Fictions. I'm Gillian Knight, and along with co-host Elizabeth Fullerton, I recently visited Karen McLean's double solo shows at Block 336 in Brixton, and we were blown away by their richness and the effect the installation had on us. In one room, there's a sculptural installation titled Blue Power, and for me, the Sea of Blue Crosses recalled so many images I've seen of World War cemeteries and their mass of white crosses. The pain of loss hit me immediately, and I thought of fallen soldiers alongside victims of slavery, and I'm still processing the public account of each. The other exhibition, Aren't I a Woman, is a breathtaking installation of loss and female resilience. In one section, the hanging of hessian bags with cowrie shells casts a beautiful shadow on the wall, and it's almost as if this becomes its site for reflection. Not just about familial lineage and its associated ancestral trauma, but also about the lineage of art and the possibilities of creative exchange, as long as both parties are equal, of course. Anyway, I'm going on and on about it. Meanwhile, today we have author and art critic Elizabeth Fullerton speaking with the artist herself, Karen McLean, about that exhibition, as well as Karen's amazing sugar houses. So I'll hand it over to them. Clearly they had to wash the sacks, I guess, to get blood off. And I just thought, oh my God, everything connected to this sweet sugar substance that we're all so addicted to. Hello and welcome to Art Fictions. I'm guest host Elizabeth Fullerton and I'm excited to introduce my guest artist this week, Karen McLean. For our discussion today, Karen has chosen the superb Pulitzer Prize winning novel, The Underground Railroad, written by Colson Whitehead and published in 2016. I'm going to give a short summary of it here before we get into our conversation. At the centre of the novel is Cora, a slave, whose mother Mabel escaped from the particularly brutal Randall plantation in Georgia when she was around 11. Some years later, Cora is persuaded to run away by a fellow slave, Caesar, and they make it to the Underground Railroad, which is depicted as a secret physical railway network run by abolitionists operating a system of safe houses. However, Cora's bids for freedom are thwarted by a ruthless slave catcher called Ridgeway, who becomes obsessed with delivering her to her former plantation. Hers is a nerve-wracking odyssey of trauma, terror, savagery, and endurance. At one point, she arrives in North Carolina, where the state has resolved to abolish slavery by wiping out the black population, including slaves and free people. Cora is kept in a tiny airless nook above the attic for months on end until the Irish servant informs on her employers. Ultimately, this is a celebration of Cora's astonishing resilience in the face of horrific inhumanity, which Whitehead lays bare with meticulous brilliance. So Karen, welcome to Art Fictions. Hi, Elizabeth. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. <laughs> I want to give listeners a snapshot of your practice so that we can move on to discussing the book. Karen's confrontational, deeply thoughtful work is born out of the experience of growing up in post-independence Trinidad in the 60s and explores the complex legacies of colonialism across all spheres, from the religious to the economic to the social to the political. 
Karen lives in Birmingham and works across sculpture, installation, wallpaper, moving image and sound. She has made sculptures inspired by vernacular architecture in the Caribbean and its relationship to British history, cast Barbadian chattel houses in sugar and created her own Victorian wallpaper subverting colonial narratives. There are so many layers to talk about around gender, domestic labour, post-colonial trauma, female power and resilience. So let's get started. The Underground Railroad is a great choice as it aligns so closely with the themes of your practice, especially in the show Aren't I a Woman? And I wanted to start by asking how you came across the book, Karen. Well, I'd actually been working on the project and Jill Perry was familiarising herself with the work and asked if I had read Whitehead's book. It was clear from the description that the issues it dealt with were exactly what my work was about. So I immediately started reading it. And, you know, it just fed right into the project, really. A young slave woman resisting the oppressive plantation decides to make a run for it. My project was about the role women took in resisting the harsh oppression that they faced and critically the oppression enacted onto their bodies. Mabel, the mother of the protagonist, tried to run away because Moses, the slave boss, was constantly raping her. So those were issues that right away just I found an affinity to what I was doing because I was dealing with women on the plantation, how their bodies had become these sites of oppression. And, you know, my interest really took me to how they resisted. And as we can see from the project and through the research, they found many ways of resisting on a daily basis. Their knowledge of plants is what really helped them to survive. You know, they came from Africa with this vast knowledge of plants and they used those plants to their best advantage, you know. Mm they actually were able to make some sort of poison and they would put that in the food. And the poison was just such a slow poison that the owners actually died later on. And of course, they couldn't detect it in those days. So that was so brilliant of them, wasn't it? Yes, <laughs> except, of course, when one died, you didn't necessarily know what you were getting next in the Underground Railroad. When the senior plantation owner dies, he's replaced by the two sons one of whom, Terence, is so sadistic and mean. Yeah, yeah. The other one is awful too, obviously his brother James, but Terence <laughs> is just brutal and vicious mm -hmm. because he enjoys it, right? Yeah. yeah. So who knows what the father really died of, right? <laughs> exactly. I love that thought though. It's, it's taking a little bit of control and power where they could. Yes, it's a way that they found agency in a really powerless, oppressive situation amazing to be able to grab anything in that situation. I mean, this book really, really conveys the horror and the, the absolute uh, removal yes, yeah. of all freedom and all humanity, doesn't it? Yes. And, and that's another thing that I really liked about the book, actually. It was not sentimental in any way, you know, from the beginning. You just knew that it was not going to spare the reader, sorry, of any kind of horrendous details of the terrible acts that were inflicted on the bodies of enslaved people. And I like that because I feel now, now is the time that slavery cannot be sanitized anymore. Yes, absolutely. Were there any particular passages or quotes that appealed to you, especially in the book? 
Yeah, in the beginning, there are three passages, and I think they are connected in the sense of what they are actually seeing. I'll just read them out to you, should I? Yes, please. The trader called upon the tobacco plantation looking for slaves of breeding age, preferably with all their teeth and a pliable disposition. She was a woman now. Off she went. A slave girl squeezing out pups was like a mint. Money that bred money. If you were a thing, a cart, or a horse, or a slave, your value determined your possibilities. She minded her place. Those passages relate to Cora's grandmother, don't they? When she first arrived. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that was yeah. really a jarry. Yes, which I think was so interesting <laughs> the way he establishes that continuity down those generations from a yes. to Mabel to Cora. Yeah, because yeah. it's the grandmother, Ajari, who first establishes herself on Randall Plantation and who establishes her precious plot of land, which is all they have. And she passes it on to Mabel and Mabel grows yams, different herbs and plants. And then when Mabel flees herself, Cora takes over the little plot and other people try and take it away. Yeah, absolutely. I think the beginning chapter was so important because, you know, from the beginning, you just had the sense of time. You just knew that this was generations, you know, and I think that people don't realize how long slavery lasted for. It was hundreds of years. And you get that sense from the beginning, knowing that Cora is now three generations down. And I really liked how her identity and the fact that it was inseparable from her mother and her grandmother through this plot of land that she inherited, you know. But it was the only tangible piece of legacy that was left. And it was important to her for a number of reasons. But critically, it was her sense of history and her collective identity. And one that she was just willing to fight for and showed how steely her character was. I really found an affinity with my wall hanging and the plot and my wall hanging was influenced by Alice Walker's everyday use and how women made quilts to stay warm but they also used everyday pieces of cloth from old clothes belonging to their grandmothers and their mothers and their children which weaved a sense of heritage into these quilts that they made so for me the plot was almost like that you know yeah absolutely (laughs) I'm going to read out a little passage about how Cora defends her plot, because I thought that was so amazing, because she's only about 12 or so at the time, and she's having to stand up for her rights. So there's fellow slave Blake, who's described as this man three times her size, a bruiser, who decides to give her plot to his dog, and everyone is waiting to see how she's going to react. In a spell, she walked back to Hob, which is her cabin, and plucked a hatchet off the wall, the hatchet she stared at when she could not sleep, left by one of the previous residents who came to one bad end or another, lung sickness or peeled open by a whip or shitting their insides out on the floor. By now word had spread and bystanders lingered outside the cabins, heads tilted in anticipation. Cora marched past them, bent as if burrowing her body into a gale. No one moved to stop her, so strange was this display. Her first blow brought down the roof of the doghouse and a squeal from the dog, who had just had his tail half severed. He scrambled to a hidey hole beneath his owner's cabin. Her second blow wounded the left side of the doghouse gravely, 
and her last put it out of its misery. She stood there heaving, both hands on the hatchet. The hatchet wavered in the air, in a tug of war with a ghost, but the girl did not falter. Yeah, that's great, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> how brave. She really is a steely little character, isn't yeah, she? Yeah, that sows the seed in a way for us to understand her character going through the book. Yes, absolutely. And I think for me, you know, the other thing about the beginning that really comes through with those passages that I just read were the issues to do with reading. I was really curious about it. I had read this passage from another book called Natural Rebels, written about the Barbados slave plantation. And there was this chapter called Reading Wenches. And I had read it years and years ago, and it just stuck there. You know, I just knew that I had to go back to it because I actually didn't know that they bred the woman when I did that research, you know, years ago. And it kept niggling at me that I needed to go back and understand mm. what was that all about? you know, what happened. And that is one of the things that really started this whole project as well. So for me, he kind of sets the stage that breeding was such an important thing. And the woman had to be at a right age, even for a jari, you know, when he comes and he squeezes her nipples in the beginning to see if she was ripe, you know, mm. I really don't understand how they get to that point either. How do they think she's ripe by squeezing a woman's nipples? But anyway... <laughs> So degrading. Uh, yeah, it really is. He was actually going to deal with the whole issue of how the bread the woman, you know, and that was what I was dealing with in the project. What did you think about this idea of visualizing the Underground Railroad as an actual physical thing? I think that he makes it so concrete, probably because I don't think people understood how it really operated. It really was such a covert operation. I actually watched Harriet on Harriet Tubman. And I guess that is probably closer to how it did operate, how people went back and forth. They risked their lives to save other people. And the physical underground railroad, I was really quite shocked with that, actually. Yeah. <laughs> but I guess it kind of shows you it really was an impossible situation. The way the whole system was organized for even people like Harriet to be going back and forth and she risked so much to do it and the methods that she did it. I think that in that movie, they did try to show it as close as possible. But the physical thing probably really brings home the point to people who would not have a clue or would not understand how it really did operate. And I think what's interesting as well, it's almost like how Arpathied was brought down because some of the whites had to help. It was not something that the blacks could do on their own, even though, as we see along the way, quite a few of them had a lot of ethical issues. So it was really a very complex situation. Yeah. How about the characterization of the different protagonists in this novel? Were there any that you particularly liked just because they were so hateful or interesting? Well, of course, I love Cora. Yeah. <laughs> but I think Ridgway's father was interesting because he was this blacksmith and he worked alongside this black guy who believed in this great spirit, you know, and he actually didn't want to become a part of this whole slavery thing. He treated his servants well and sometimes even treated the guy that he worked with even better than his son. So that was interesting. And then the son goes off and becomes a slave catcher. Ironic. Uh, yeah. 
ironic, yeah. <laughs> but I found what was interesting about that is that the son made a really important point. He said, from the time the cotton gin was invented, we all became complicit in the system, whether or not I'm catching the sleeves or you're making iron. And the father hadn't looked at it that way because the irons that he was making were for the horses that carry the cotton or for the gin itself or for the cogs. You know, he says, we are all a cog in the system. That's really interesting because all the industries that evolved from cotton, from sugar, from indigo, which they were also growing, all those industries, whether you wanted to remain far removed from it, it was the thing that was propelling the country, you know what I mean? And everybody became a part of it. So the whole of America was actually built on the subjugation of the indigenous Indians and the slaves. Yeah. And it's interesting also these father-son relationships, because for instance, the father and Martin, the guy who finds Cora in the railway tunnel in North Carolina and who takes her into his house reluctantly, he has a strange relationship also with his father because yes. only once his father dies, does he discover yeah. that this <laughs> strange man who he wasn't close to was actually saving slaves and helping the mm. railroad and his dying wish to his yes. son was please carry on my work yes. and it's the last thing the son wants to do at all and mm. he becomes almost her jailer doesn't he mm-hmm. he supposedly is giving her safe haven but she's locked in this suffocating tiny space in the top 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 of his house and she almost is saved by Ridgeway, the slave catcher, because I think probably they would have been turned in by some informers. And I think Cora would have hung. She would have had this really nasty end. And at least yeah. she's handed over to Ridgeway and mm. eventually escapes him, thank goodness. But what a strange couple. And Ethel, the wife, she's got this missionary fantasy that I think yes. probably mixed up with repressed homosexual desires. But her fantasy is to rescue an African, and I'm quoting yeah. inverted commas, savage, because that's what he writes. And that's interesting because when Cora gets sick in the attic and they have to bring her down, she begins to teach Cora about the Bible. And then if you look at her background, her background is her father had a slave and the slave woman had this child and forbade Ethel from actually playing with the little girl. So then Ethel had to start treating her like a slave rather than a friend. So she's really kind of messed up, isn't she? Don't forget that her father, when the young girl becomes of age, probably before, starts going upstairs to her room to sleep with her. Yes. So Ethel is faced with all these ethical issues and then she ends up with Cora in the house and starts to teach Cora the Bible. But Cora, when the overseer whips her, he's actually reciting Bible verses. And she remembers the Bible verses very well and there are contradictions in the Bible verses. So when Ethel starts to teach her the Bible, you know, there's an uneasiness in Korah, but then she realizes the Bible is a very difficult thing to understand because it can come up with so many different answers. (laughs) (laughs) Even from the beginning, when Lovey wants to join them, Korah is really in a quandary. You know, it's going to really compromise their escape. She takes Lovey and then they get caught. 
But for her to survive, she actually has to kill a man. And then she becomes this evil murderer in the eyes of the whites. So yeah, there's so much for Cora to navigate on her way to freedom. It really is an enormous journey, both physically and emotionally. Yes, absolutely. I remember reading Beloved and absolutely feeling at the end of it that there must have been so much mental illness on a plantation because, you know, of the harshness of the environment. How could they not have mental issues, you know? I don't know if anybody has ever been able to do any sort of work around that. Yeah, you'd have to rely on journals and diaries and say oral histories, but no one would have been listening. No one probably had time for people's tales of mental anguish because it was just a question of survival one day to the next. Absolutely. Regarding the show, Aren't I a Woman? I mean, that dovetails so brilliantly with the Underground Railroad. One room is lined with stitched Hessian sacks used for transporting sugar and tea, printed and branded with images of uteruses and of the legendary Jamaican heroine, Queen Nanny of the Maroons, who fought the British colonizers. Can you tell me more about how you got inspired to make that show? I had read this book years ago, Natural Rebels, and, you know, I really wanted to go back to that issue of breeding wenches. And I had also just finished the exhibition at Lewisham Art House, the Precariat. I was actually deinstalling, and I met this curator and friend of mine. And I was saying to her, oh, you know, I just feel to take these little sugar houses and put them on the Thames and let them sort of drift away and melt into the Thames. It just felt like this sort of cathartic thing to do. And she says, oh, well, why don't you take it to the Docklands? Maybe it might be more suited in that water, you know what I mean? And then she sent me this image of Blood Alley. They had lines of the Hessian sats hanging. And there was something about the image that really caught my imagination. Blood Alley was called Blood Alley because stevedores would take the Hessian sacks, throw them on their backs, walk up this alley. And I guess they took the sugar out of the sacks when they got there. But their backs would be bleeding by the end of the evening because, you know, the Hessian is so rough. So... Clearly, they had to wash the sacks, I guess, to get the blood off or whatever. And I just thought, oh, my God, everything connected to this substance, this sweet substance that we're also addicted to one way or another. But just the hanging of them really kind of caught my imagination and sort of stayed in my mind for such a long time. Then I started doing the research. And there are so many other artists like Louise Bourgeois, who's worked with sacks. It's synonymous with the woman's body, you know, the resilience, the durability of the sack itself. There were so many metaphoric qualities in the form itself that really made me realize that the sack was going to be the way to actually express this project. Mm-hmm. I was also looking at the time at Ibrahim Mahama's work because he works with sacks as well. Ibrahim actually uses his sacks at the end of their lives. He's also dealing with commodification and other issues. But I just felt because I wanted to hero this resilient, strong woman, which has never really been done before. I wanted to imbue the sacks with a lot of value. You know, I actually made Aunt I a Woman for Walsall Art Gallery. Because of COVID, they postponed the show. So I approached Block and I said, look, this work cannot wait. You know, this work is relevant now. Black Lives Matter just happened. The mindset has totally changed, you know, 
I'm also interested in the title, Aren't I a Woman? Because I thought immediately of Bell Hooks, Ain't I a Woman? Which is taken from Sojourner Truth's speech. Yes, absolutely. Yes. I hadn't realized there was also a really famous book, Aren't I a Woman? Yes. So that's what I was reading. So yes, Deborah Gray Wright took it from Sojourner Truth's speech in the 1800s. And I took it from Deborah Gray Wright's book, but I changed the question mark at the end into an exclamation because again you know I really want a hero this strong resilient woman when I started the project it was a year that there was so much ado about the suffragettes and all these great women and for me the slave woman was just missing and I felt at that time well I need to hero her which year was that I actually started in 2019 Right. Okay. And how did you go about researching Nanny? I have a long period of research where I do a lot of reading for this project because I was working in Brixton. The gallery was really keen for me to work with the Black Cultural Archives and they had the indentures of a small plantation called the Gale Plantation. And that's where all the names of the women actually came from. So if you have like a grade two listed house or a grade one listed house, you would have like an indenture, you know, that they kind of pass on from one buyer to another. And the indenture usually states when the house was sold, who it was sold to, et cetera, et cetera. But this indenture was really different. It was about maybe about eight huge pages and the indenture included all the cattle or should I say all the livestock and the slaves so it was really kind of uh really moving yeah so they had a list of males they had a list of females they had a list of infants and it was really striking how they had all these Anglo-Saxon names Charlotte Sophia and it was just a way of them robbing them again of their African identity, you know, giving them these Anglo-Saxon names. And of course, they could never have the title of Miss. That was saved for white ladies. So I wanted to really humanize them again, because after seeing them in the indenture. Listed with cattle. Yeah, we're listed with everything that went with the house. You know, it really shows the dehumanization. Where was that plantation? So that plantation was in Jamaica. Right. Was Nanny a figure that was known throughout the Caribbean as you were growing up? Had you heard of Queen Nanny? No, I actually hadn't heard of Nanny until I actually started doing a lot of research on colonialism and slavery. Yeah, because Nanny was in Jamaica. She's a Jamaican national hero. And she was actually given 500 acres of land when she signed a treaty with the British in 1740. And the Maroons are still very existent on that land in Jamaica. There's still a Maroon community. Amazing. I hadn't realised that. What is the significance of the spider in your works? Because there were lots of spiders among the Hessian sacks. So that's Anansi. Anansi is very much a part of the resistance as well. Anansi came from Africa. He's an Asante. And it's really interesting. I was talking to Emily Zubel Marshall yesterday, who wrote the book Anansi. And the African tales eventually had to change to suit the environment that they now were in, you know. So he evolves into a Jamaican spider. 
I was reading how coming home to their little huts in the evening, they could just imagine how important it was for Anansi's stories to be told, to give them the courage for the next day, because Anansi was a trickster spider. And he always found a way to defeat the colonizer. <laughs> and for the children, you know, it was a way of them carrying on their oral history by telling these stories and uh, lineage to their heritage, really. And what about the show Blue Power? This evokes a vast graveyard to the victims of colonialism, with 80 crosses standing in a sea of 12,000 tiny paper boats. The crosses are lined with a blue soap widely used in the Caribbean for warding off spirits. I wanted to ask you where the inspiration for that came from and also how you managed physically to make all those tiny weenie boats, which must have broken <laughs> your fingers. <laughs> yeah, I did a short residency in Trinidad in 2017 and felt that I needed some raw material. I hadn't been back to the country for like four years. And you're actually reading all the news on the internet before you go and along the way. It's how you kind of keep in touch when you, you leave your home in inverted commas. And you kind of go back with a little bit of trepidation because since I have left, the crime has really increased quite a lot. So I got back and I was reading the newspapers every day. And in the newspapers, you know, there are all these murders and they're very graphic. And then on the other hand, I felt everybody was really praying so much. And I was also very interested as well at that time in the syncretic religious practices that we have that have evolved since slavery. So the Africans brought their own religion with them and they actually kept their religion with them internally. But of course, during colonization, colonialism, I should say, the European religions were projected onto them. So I became quite interested in the syncretic religious practices because nowadays, if you look at how they perform you know, their rituals and so on, there's a blend of both. So there was this whole thing of prayer on one hand and all this crime on the other hand. People were actually leaving as well, you know, people were desperate to find a better life. The middle classes and the upper classes, you know, they were putting more burglar bars on their homes or moving to what they now call gated communities. So they're finding ways to get around the crime instead of really sort of dealing with the crime in an effective way. So that's what really fueled the exhibition and, of course, the crosses are syncretic crosses because on top of all the religious prayer that's going on, we also have mythology that runs alongside it. And one of the myths is that we have this blue soup, which is a blue carbolic soup. We use it for everything. You know, if anything goes wrong, people would say, you better have a bath in blue soup. Or even like the people that live in Tobago, for instance, I know they put it over their doors before you walk in, you will be cleansed of all your bad omens or vibes or whatever. <laughs> you have a beaded curtain of yes. soap, right? With crosses and skulls. Yes. The entrance to the show. Yes, exactly. And the crosses are also made from plasterers' lats, which are really old historic construction materials. I remember when I went to see Shakespeare's house in Stratford, you know, there's a hole in the wall and you could see the plasterer's lats behind there and the wattle and dorm is kind of stuck onto it. So I use these old construction materials to reference the historic relation 
to the project. And then I blended it with the mythological blue carbolic soups. And both, I did the lion's share of them in the night when I'm watching TV. <laughs> so, yeah. It is quite therapeutic, you know. For our entire woman, actually, I was working at Steamhouse. So for the first time, I had some assistance. They are funded by the European Union as well as the, the Birmingham City University. So that was great. <laughs> But it's probably two years of working those boots. Wow. It's so atmospheric in the blue lighting with the blue soap and the crosses and the boats. It's amazing. And the boats, because they're placed at different angles, it actually looks like they're moving on waves, doesn't it? Yes, it's really quite effective. I think it's quite universal in what's happening at the moment because these are the boats that are arriving on our shores every day. The inequalities are so great that lots of people are searching for a much better life, aren't they? Absolutely. And on the end wall of the installation, you have the Blue Devil. Yeah. So the Blue Devil is a carnival figure. Right. So Trinidad, we did not have a large slave society until the late 1700s. So we were still owned by the Spanish and it was just after the Haitian Revolution and the Spanish government offered the French plantation owners a lot of land if they came to Trinidad and they got even more land if they had slaves. So the French plantation owners after the Haitian Revolution got scared and a lot of them decided, like from Guadeloupe, Martinique, Haiti, that they would go somewhere else because they were scared that the same thing that happened in Haiti would happen to them. So quite a few French plantation owners came to Trinidad during that period and they brought their slaves. And so our slave population really developed and the French brought with them their masquerade. So every Monday and Tuesday before Lent, they would go out and cavort, you know. (laughs) And of course, the slaves weren't allowed to participate. And I think as it drew closer to emancipation, they started to have their own little outlaw masquerade. And they would use the molasses to cover themselves and to become whoever they wanted to become. Mm -hmm. And it was during that time that they would mimic the French plantation owners. And from there, our mass really evolved. So we have something called Jouvé. It's still called Jouvé, which is a French word for morning. And at around three o'clock in the morning is when our carnival really begins. And we come out onto the streets and that is very much a steel pan masquerade. And we mask ourselves as well, but not in pretty masks like we do during the day. We use blue, we use cocoa, all sorts of different things to cover ourselves and mask our identity. And of course, it's dark. So you sort of have privilege to kind of do whatever you want to do. A lot of the work that I make actually stems from my memories, the domestic things that I use, the things that I saw in my landscape, like the vernacular architecture, or even when I was young, my dad would take us for drives and we would go into the countryside and in the vegetable plantations, they would actually put sticks and they would put milk of magnesia, which came in a blue bottle. They would save those bottles and put them on the sticks. That was to protect their crops, really. What they would say is so that people wouldn't look at their crops with a bad eye. The blue that I actually use in Blue Devil is a little cube that we used to use when we wash white clothes. It was called Crown Rickettes Blue. I found it here somewhere and I just couldn't believe that I could still find this thing from my childhood. So I greeted it and it became like this pigment, you know, almost like how um, Anish Kapoor uses this pigment. And I just love the color. You can patent it into Karen McLean's special pigment. (laughs) 
I might have to do that now. <laughs> so yeah, I actually went down to Brixton Market as well. And there was an African lady selling one there that was called Sunshine Ultramarine. And it was for the same thing to get the white clothes white. So I took it back to the studio, mixed it with the one that I had greeted. And it was just this beautiful pigment that's on the Blue Devil now. Mm. So the Blue Devil comes out in the morning and when I was doing the research for him, I actually found out that the Blue Devils of Paramin, that's exactly what they use. They use the Crown Rickettes Blue. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, it was amazing. So they bash it with a bottle and then they mix it with some sort of cream and put it all over their bodies. They put on their horns. They come out in the morning. They have little devil forks. But along five, six in the morning, they're beating the tin drums and you can hear them coming. They're so scary because they dance and they're aggressive. And oh, I hated them when I was a kid. I was always so scared of them. You have to pay them to kind of get rid of them. So you pay them, but you're not supposed to touch them. You throw the money on the ground, but they become enslaved to the money. So the Blue Devil is very much about good versus evil, but also about the enslavement to money which sort of references the governments that are corrupt. So he's very much a part of our mythology and our culture, but he has a very poignant position in the exhibition. That's so interesting. I would love to see the carnival. And if you notice, I've also put 22 karat gold leaf behind him and in his eyes. I had actually started off playing with how historically they make these religious icons and they always put gold behind them. Yes, they do. The Russian ones. Yeah, exactly. I love how you (laughs) use the gold in Aren't I a Woman in the hanging sculpture with those chains with the cowrie shells. It contrasts so starkly with the Hessian. Of course, cowrie shells were initially the money that they used to trade the slaves. And then silence me not, me arise, interspersed with each cowrie shell is a gold-plated bead. One, giving value to the woman, and two, referencing the capitalism. Just going on to your fabulous sugar house installation, the Chattel Houses, which I'm desperate to see now. And I really hope that you will be invited to restage. You've got all these hanging Chattel Houses made of sugar that eventually with gravity just slump down and ooze and drip. And they just create amazing forms that you can't predict. I just think it looks incredible. And that also does link to the Underground Railroad, even though you hadn't read it at that point, because in the book, we see the slaves having to build their own houses. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about the origin of the chattel houses and your work around that. Well, for a long time, I've been working with the vernacular architecture of the Caribbean and really kind of trying to get to the core of the persistence of them. And of course, that just leads right back to colonialism and the legacy of it because when slavery was abolished they gave 20 million pounds to the plantation owners in 1834 but they never gave a penny to the slaves you know I felt it should have gone the other way obviously (laughs) we've only just paid off those plantation owners as well yes exactly so they were basically just throwing this landless peasantry out into the open with nothing You know, when I look at those shacks now, there are generations and generations of Afro-Caribbean people that have never really been able to survive the onslaught of what happened during slavery. So if you look around the Caribbean, they're mostly shacks, but Barbados has this really unique shuttle house. 
Barbados was mostly sugar plantations and owned by the English. And during the time that they colonized and they were actually developing it, the Georgian architecture, of course, was the thing in England. So if you look at Barbados, there are lots of Georgian houses as well as Jacobian, the master houses. From the inception, it was always built by the slaves and it went through different phases. In the beginning, I think they sort of built it in a way that was similar to the way that they built their houses in Africa with the little thatch roofs and so on. But as time went on, it had to evolve because, of course, of the weather, the insects. And then it got to the stage where we are at now. And that stage is very Georgian. So I actually went to Barbados maybe about eight, ten years ago. And I have a friend who lives in Barbados and she was able to take me around because there's still quite a few of the original ones. And I chose one of those, a little pink one. So each sugar house starts off like that same little pink one. At the time I was reading Homi Baba, he has this essay that is called Mimicry and Man. And in that, he argues that colonial mimicry is the desire for a reformed, recognizable other as a subject of a difference that is almost the same, but not quite. In this scenario, the colonizer wants to improve the life of the other and make him like himself through a projection of culture. But he wants to maintain a sense of difference, you know. So the European attempts this civilization project by projecting his culture onto the slave. And he does that through religion, education, architecture. So the other becomes almost the same, but never quite the same. And Baba argues that for colonial mimicry to work, there must be a clear difference. He calls it a slippage. And this is where the danger lies, because in the slippage, there's the unknown. And because mimicry requires this slippage to function, it gives power to the colonizer, but it also becomes a very subversive tool for the colonized, because he is visualized this power. So I guess this is what happens when they build these houses, that if they build the houses the same as the owner, that they're taking their power. And Jacques Lacan has a very good way of describing it. He says, the effect of mimicry is camouflage. It is not a question of harmonizing with the background. So I made these moves. I first made a wooden shuttle house, exactly the same as a little pink one. And then I made a mold. And then I filled the mold with sugar that I boil. And I have to boil the sugar to like about 310 degrees Fahrenheit. And I fill the mold with the sugar. I leave it for like a day and a half. But as I take them out of the mold, because it's sugar, the weather starts to affect them. And each one has a wire rope in it. And then I hang them. And I actually leave them in a gallery for about a week. So this is where the slippage actually happens. Because this is when I have to let go of any kind of artist control. And I walk away and it's pretty scary (laughs) because I don't know what I'm going to come back and find. But I'm always pleasantly surprised because after working with the material for a long period of time, I realized that the material is actually resisting from inside. And it's like the woman. It's like all my other projects. The enslaved actually carried their heritage. They carried their religion. They carried everything inside of them. They resisted from inside. And the houses also resist from inside. And it was interesting when I went back to the gallery after doing my MFA show, all of the characteristics of the Georgian house on the outside actually stayed 
Really? Yeah, even though they dropped on the ground and they were starting to melt, if you went down on the ground and you looked at them, you could still see the windows, you could still see the doors. And again, like the Hessian sacks, when I did the branding on one side and the gold on the other side, it was almost as if they were speaking to me and saying, you know what, you could throw anything at me, project what you want in me, do what you want to me, but I am going to find a way out of this. The houses just seem to say, I will become my own hybrid. I will become my own person. Everyone had a different personality. They all did a different thing. But interestingly, the architectural characteristics stayed on the outside of the sugar. Crazy. And those were shown where? I actually developed the work at Goldsmiths for my final show. And when I had my final show, Julie Bentley from After Projects fell in love with them. So she asked me to do a show with her. Mm. So as soon as you hang them, they start to drip. And the drips that they make on the floor, it's almost like they're crying. And unfortunately, the week that we had the exhibition, that we actually left them hanging, Grenfell Tower burned down. Oh, my gosh. The audience was actually coming with that experience. You know, they were actually seeing these little black houses, like burnt houses. And as well, there were so many Caribbean people living in Granville Towers. So it just added this whole other layer, you know? Yeah, that's really, really poignant. Yeah. Well, I so hope you have a chance to restage that, especially coming <laughs> in the wake of Blue Power and Aren't I a Woman. Now more people have had a chance to experience your work. I think it would be really fantastic to be able to see. That. All three. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> What about other artists and influences? When I first started my practice, I actually started off looking at Eva Hess. I love her work so much. I was going to ask you because I think of Contingent from 1999 yes. with the work that you showed in Aren't I a Woman? I immediately thought of Eva Hesse. Yeah, and I did look at Contingent and I still look at Contingent because I think it's such a marvellous piece, you know, and if you look at how I've hung them, I've hung them in a similar way to how she hung Contingent. I would have loved to do Seven, like how she did Seven, <laughs> but we never quite got there. So I look at Eva Hesse a lot. Of course, I look at Louise Bourgeois. She's very much someone. I turned to her immediately as I started doing this project because I did remember that she did look at Sachs as well, but she looked at Sachs as woman, aging, that sort of thing, you know. And spiders, of course. And the spiders, Maman. Yeah. yeah. But her spider is different again. Her spider is about her mother. Teresa Margulis. I looked at her work when I started this project as well, because she deals with trauma. She's also dealing with violent countries where she lives. And so is Doris Salsado. So they're very important to me. I love the way that Doris works with her trauma as well, living in that sort of violence. Fiesta Gates. I listen to him a lot in my studio. He has some great podcasts. The way that he works with his materials and also the materials of his childhood, like how he works with the tar that he helped his father to make the roofs with. He also works with some interesting materials or the way that he worked with the fire hoses that sprayed down the people during civil war. So, you know, really interesting artist for me in my work dealing with similar issues. Elanatsu. I love the way that he puts everything together, you know, all those little bottle caps and makes these, yeah, huge wall hanging. I love Sheila Gowda's work. She also works a lot with materials and mythology. 
of course, Ibrahim Mahama, he mm-hmm. is the Ghanaian guy who works with sax now and has done some amazing things with it. He has actually covered buildings with these sax. And when I saw that, I was like, oh, can you imagine going around England and covering all those great houses that are built all over England with these sax? That would be such a great project. It would be amazing. <laughs> yeah. And one of the early, early artists that I really loved. When I first came here, I'd never done art at school. And when I was doing my foundation, Foundation. It took us to Tate and I saw Joseph Boys. I was just kind of blown away with his work. Donald Judd, he is also one that I have constantly looked back at. I love the way that he uses his form. And that was something that was critical to Anti Woman because, you know, the sack itself is a rectangle. How I was going to develop this language with this very sort of basic rectangular form became quite an issue for me. What about books you're reading now? Yeah, well, I'm kind of taking a little bit of a down time. (laughs) But there's something that's niggling at me, as it always does. So I did this interview with Paul Goodwin with Block 336 at the beginning of the project. There's something that came out of the whole conversation that was about control, because we spoke about rival geographies, which was a big thing. That was the term that Edward Said coined, you know, how they controlled people on the plantations and how important control was. So yeah, control is really kind of niggling at my mind now. I got this really fantastic book, which I requested for a Christmas present called The Devil's Rope. It's a cultural history of barbed wire. Wow, that will be amazing. Who's it by? Oh, I can't remember, you know. And I did start reading it. I read a couple of pages. It's already stimulating my creative juices. Exciting. <laughs> Makes me want to read it too. I've just found it. It's The Devil's Rope, A Cultural History of Barbed Wire by Alan Krell. There you go. But I would imagine it's going to be a quite a heavy thing. So yeah, I'm going to just have a little downtime, which I usually do. I usually need space between my exhibitions because I'm dealing with such heavy issues. And I'm also waiting for Steamhouse to reopen because Steamhouse is this fantastic space we have in Birmingham that is an innovation space, but it also has access to artists. And we are so blessed to have it. So that's where I created Entire Woman. And having all the workshops available to me really enabled it. I just want to say thank you, Steamhouse. (laughs) Fantastic. What about residencies, exhibitions, research coming up? Steamhouse doesn't open until next year, February. So I think between now and then I would embark on my research. I do think that I want to apply for research and development grant because I would like to go to G's Bend in Alabama. They do quilting retreats. Fantastic. So Karen, it's been completely fascinating to hear about your work and your research. Thank you so much for taking time to be on Art Fictions. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. And it has also been a pleasure spending this time with you. Thank you, listeners, and also thanks to today's guest artist, Karen McLean, as well as today's host, Elizabeth Fullerton. I'll be back next episode with Luke Bergen talking through the Topeka School by Ben Lerner, as well as his art practice and particularly the work he's produced on a 12-month residency in Cambridge. Happy reading and art viewing till next time. Actually, I was going to ask, but I didn't get to it, if you were at all interested in Kara Walker's Sugar Baby. Wow, that was amazing, huh? I don't know how she did that one. Oh my God, it was so huge. I know. 
how the hell did she brew that sugar to put in it? Because it looks like she did something similar to what I did in terms of brewing. Yeah, the logistics are mind boggling. It really is. I was invited to also apply for St. Pancras Station, you know, where Tracy Emmett and all of them put their works. They're trying to do that on the other side where people come in and go up the escalators. So I did put in a proposal to put the, the sugar houses, but to do them in resin. And there's a company in Birmingham that really wants to work with me and they do things like that. So, you know, when you think something is not possible, there are companies out there that are doing all these things. So when I proposed it for St. Pancras, I actually proposed that we would do it in lots of different colours, like of the rainbow, to make it bright and cheerful, to remind people of going home. Well, I hope there will be another chance. They need another outing.